This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. An innovative fermenter that's 100% made in the USA. No cleaning or sanitizing required. The Genesis fermenter from Brewcraft is all of that. Just place the sanitary inner liner in the Genesis, fill with your wort, and pitch your yeast. That's it. Not to mention you can't break it, it has built-in handles, and the opening is almost 6 inches wide. The Genesis Fermenter from Brewcraft USA is truly innovative and can be purchased anywhere Brewcraft USA products are sold. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his guilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote the best hobby there is, homebrewing. Join us today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, money-saving AHA member deals, and access to exclusive events and competitions. And remember, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. Why Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Why Yeast? And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hey there, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Bad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the almost really, truly here, as in when we launch this podcast, probably here now, book, Homebrew All-Stars. So, Hooray, hooray, hooray. <laughs> I know. Yay, we can stop saying forthcoming. All right. Yeah. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer with strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for making fun of Drew and questioning the conventional wisdom and testing it out. Yeah, the problem is making fun of Drew is the conventional wisdom. So. <laughs> That's right. On today's episode, we have a lot of material to cover, so we're going to get to it quickly. But we're going to head to the pub to discuss more details about the forthcoming homebrew con in Baltimore, a new gluten-free ingredient that's much like an old one, a new brewing powerhouse, and a trademark fight. 
Then we'll head to the library to discuss our new book, and then it's off to the lab where we'll be joined by our fellow beer scientist, Marshall Schott, to discuss the Igor's findings about olive oil versus aeration. And then we head to the lounge and we have an interview with Barrett Tillman, who heads up sour beers over at Deep Ellen Brewing Company in Dallas, Texas. And finally, we're going to hit you up with another round of Ask Denny and Drew before we close out with our uh, quick tips of the week. We want to remind you that you can support us via Patreon. Uh, you can donate any amount of money you like by going to our website and clicking on the Patreon logo there. We are using that money to fund uh, a donation to our charity of choice, which is Freedom Service Dogs. They're a really highly rated group out of Colorado that rescues dogs from shelters and trains them to be service animals for folks with disabilities and military vets. So uh, help us raise some money for the pooches. Yeah, and as we approach the end of June, we're winding down this first half of the charity year. So we'd like to thank our Patreon patrons so far who've donated to the cause and helped us raise nearly $200 for Freedom Service Dogs. So help us. Yay. I know, right? Help us. Good job, people. Exactly. Help us get to our $250 goal for this first go around. Whatever we collect by the end of the June goes to the pups. After that, what's our next charity cause? Well, you can help us decide. More saving dogs, save the cows. Or buy Drew a sandwich. Indeed. Well, hey, just remember. No matter what you choose to donate, even if it's just a buck, that does help us meet our goals and help fund the uh, the podcast. So go to patreon.com slash experimentalbrew or find the Patreon link on our website. That's right. Send us a little bit of money. It won't hurt you, and it's really going to help out a lot of people. And with that, I guess it's about time to head over to the pub and talk about the beer life, huh? Indeed. All righty. We'll be right back from the pub. Okay, Drew and I are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in your town, USA. And today I am drinking a Northeast-style IPA called uh, Santilli. It comes from uh, Night Shift Brewing out of Everett, Massachusetts. And it's uh, kind of atypical for what you normally see as a Northwest IPA because it's... Uh, a pretty clear beer, and uh, that's about all I'm going to say about that, because I'm writing a review of 10 Northeast-style IPAs that uh, will show up on the website, and uh, we'll discuss them here. So, what are you drinking today, Drew? Well, I'm still staying on the session tip uh, right now. I'm having one of my favorite beers, uh, a Firestone Walker Easy Jack. Nice little session oh. IPA, which really should yeah. be a pale ale, but whatever. It's a great beer. <laughs> what I like about this Santilli is it's just loaded with flavor, but it's only 6%, which for an IPA is kind of like on the low end, so that's a nice well, I mean, that's, that's kind of like right back into old school IPA levels, right? Yep, that's right. That's right. So, Okay, well, uh, spring is here, summer's on its way, and it seems to be the season of Denny and Drew everywhere. Uh, so uh, we'll start with uh, Monday, May 2nd. We'll be appearing on the Brewing Network starting at about 6.30. We'll be talking about the new book, and we'll be giving JP a whole lot of crap, which is one of our favorite things to do. 
But uh, really big news is uh, Homebrew Con, uh, or also known as the AHA National Homebrew Convention. We'll be speaking twice. We'll be speaking uh, Thursday, June 9th at 2 p.m. and Saturday, June 11th again at 2 p.m. Following the Thursday seminar, we'll be at the Craftmeister booth on Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. And we'll be doing a uh, live troubleshooting session. So uh, bring your beers by, let Drew and me taste them. And uh, if you're having problems with them, maybe we can help you out. And maybe we'll just tell you what a great beer. And who knows, we might even get some celebrity judges involved. We might, and we might not, so don't hold your breath. (laughs) Uh, We'll be doing our live question and answer podcast session on Friday from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Brewcraft booth. So please be sure to come by that. Uh, Bring your questions. Come by and see all the Brewcraft guys. Uh, And this is just after the AHA-sponsored forum meetup for various internet groups of all sorts. Uh, We'll be there also. Check your schedule for location. Oh, actually, I guess it's going to be in the social club. So there will be beer and food available there. So come on by and get in on the internet group meetup. Uh, we may even try and do uh, a little troubleshooting there if you bring a beer and we'll talk to you about it. And just in case that isn't enough for you, we're also going to be doing a book signing before our talk on Thursday. We'll be at the Brewer's Publication booth from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. signing uh, both of our books, including our new book, Homebrew All-Stars. And uh, one last thing, for those of you going to the Craft Brewers Conference in Philadelphia in May, I'll be there hanging at the uh, Pico Brew booth. So come on by, say hi, check out the uh, Zymatic and Pico that they're going to be showing. I'm exhausted, man. (laughs) Well, and we haven't even started. It's con season, buddy. (laughs) That's right. That's right. It is con season for the con. So, uh, what's this I hear about gluten-free barley? All right, so we know the gluten-free th- uh, thing has been all the rage recently with brewers trying to figure out, uh, hey, wait, what do you mean people don't want gluten in their beer anymore? Now, leaving aside all the science and whatnot about gluten intolerance and celiacs and all that and whether or not you think it's as big of a deal as people are making of it, uh, there was an announcement out of Australia last week uh, that where Australian scientists say they have developed the world's first uh, who, you know, the worldwide, uh, health, uh, worldwide health organization, uh, yep. uh, who approved gluten-free barley. So they, Australia's Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, or CISRO, uh, had said that it sold 70 tons of this new uh, Kabari barley to Germany's largest brewer, Radeberger, uh, to produce beer to send into the supermarkets. So it's very strange, but I mean, yeah, they've figured out a way, I guess, to make uh, barley, which does contain gluten, uh, well, relatively gluten-free or gluten-reduced or whatever legal governmental-approved term you want to use. And the big thing about this is why is it a big deal is you may have noticed that there's been a rise of craft cider and other cider brands in in stores recently, and part of that's been fueled by the whole gluten-free movement. Uh, and I think we're at the point now, according to the article I read, it says here, gluten-free is one of the world's fastest growing consumer trends with the market expected to grow more than 10% a year until 2020 
and to be worth $7.59 billion. So that's a heck of a lot of money that people are trying to get a slice of. And so if this gluten-free Kabari barley, uh, it says here it contains minute uh, minute amounts of gluten. Uh, Cicero has claimed that it is 10,000 times less gluten than traditional barley. So who knows? Now, this is... You know, just a, possibly another weapon in the bag of uh, people to be able to do uh, gluten-free or gluten-reduced beers. You know, it, for a while, everybody was trying to do everything with sorghum and millet and sort of traditionally gluten-free grains. And then people glommed on to the idea of using enzymes that you can find from various providers to chop up the gluten into into tiny, possibly irrelevant parts. And now, well, let's go and try and affect the actual ingredient itself and make a barley without gluten. Seems kind of strange and spooky, but hey, there we go. I wonder how the uh, anti-GMO people will take this. Well, and particularly the anti-GMO people who are celiac. <laughs> yeah, really. Going to be very, very interesting. Well, that, that, might, that might also be a vanishingly small part, part of the population. But, <laughs> I, hey, look, uh, what, I, what I think is cool about this is, one, I mean, okay, yeah, again, whatever you think about the gluten-free trend, I don't care. But the fact that the market is able to respond in such a way and that science has figured out a way to actually do this so that, hey, look, we've taken out the gluten out of this stuff, uh, but done it relatively naturally. So it's not a post-process. It's literally part of the grain. So it's kind of cool. Yep, it is. It is. So, Okay. uh, And a name change for a country, huh? Yeah, I know. So here's the other fun one that, that I saw. Uh, you know, back with the breakup of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, we had a lot of uh, various things go all higgly-piggly and get changed around. And one of them that was that the uh, Czechoslovakia was no longer Czechoslovakia. You know, it became the Czech Republic because it split into multiple parts. And so, you know, uh, we don't usually see a lot of name changes. Those tend to happen very catastrophically, you know, massive governmental changes, that sort of thing. This is the first time I've ever heard of a mar- of a country's name change really coming around from a marketing thing, which is that the Czech Republic has now asked uh, the UN to put as an approved uh, shortened name for the country uh, the word Czechia. I think I'm saying that right, but it's basically C Z E C H I A Czechia. Uh, I'm uh, probably saying that wrong. But now, apparently this is like, you know, for instance, Russia's real name is the Russian Federation, but it has a UN-approved name like Russia. Uh, France is the French Republic. And so they're trying to uh, put this in here as kind of a manufacturing thing because, uh, manufacturing and marketing, because it's a hell of a lot easier to say Chechia than it is to say the Czech Republic. So now you're going to be able to see your beer coming from Chechia, and not from the Czech Republic. I'm so excited. I know. I know. I, <laughs> again, to me, I think what's fascinating to me about this is is the fact that this isn't some sort of weird dictatorial whim. It's not a, caused by a governmental change. It's not caused by a, a catastrophic split. I mean, it's literally the modern marketing thing. Uh, so... <laughs> uh, uh, and apparently it's it's kind of controversial in in the Czech Republic uh, as it stands right now because the prime minister who's putting this into place basically been pushing for it for a while and has been made fun of and I don't know I guess he got enough momentum to finally do it 
And there are like all these different names that were proposed, but they all kind of have uh, failed reasons for them. So like one of them is that I guess people in uh, in the Czech Republic would like for it to actually be named for the two main regions, uh, Bohemia and Moravia, right? And you have two names that are very familiar to brewers. Uh, but apparently, according to the uh, economist, one of the reasons not to use that name is that it would bring back shades of the fact that that's what the Nazis called it when they controlled the area, the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. So, yay European history for being complicated. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I guess now we have absolute 100% proof that Drew is a nerd, because he finds that fascinating. So uh, I find it interesting. I'll, I'll go that far. So Anyway, moving, moving along... Our uh, good friend Michael Fairbrother and his uh, Moonlight Meadery are having a special sale, but it's not necessarily for a really good reason, huh? No, so, you know, we've talked before, like, with the expansion of craft brewing and everything else, that uh, the namespace is kind of becoming crowded. And so, apparently, Moonlight is now under threat of lawsuit. Uh, basically, their trademark that they have on Moonlight Meadery is being attacked by... Uh, Moonlight Brewing Company out of Windsor, California. And so uh, Mike is throwing a sale on where you can go to their online store at moonlightmeadery.com and use the coupon code Fight for Moonlight to get with a $35 discount on uh, the Utopian Mead. And if you don't know Utopian, that is Mike's big honking mead that comes in very tiny little bottles, but it's aged in Utopia barrels from Sam Adams. It's frickin' delicious. It's frickin' rare. It's also frickin' expensive. But you get uh, a discount on that. You get a discount on shipping. And the money is going to be basically used to pay lawyers because this has turned into a legal fight. Um, and I'm just going to say it kind of makes me sad because I really like Mike. I really like Moonlight Meadery. And I also really like Moonlight Brewing Company uh, because that guy is crazy and does all sorts of really wonderful stuff. Um, yeah, just, it's, it's one of these things where you kind of wish that you had like the whole camaraderie of the craft brewing world and, and have that actually be a thing, you know? Um, Yep. Yep. That's, that's true, but that's, that's not the way business works, unfortunately. No, I know. But I mean, like, I normally to me, like one of the things about these sorts of trademark fights is that usually it's like, oh, you know, uh, I can look at it and go, oh, this is clearly the bad guy. This is a person that I don't like now. And, you know, I can be righteous in my fury and anger. Uh, and in this particular case, um, this one actually kind of hurts a little to me. Because, like I said, I like both sides. It just seems <laughs> kind of stupid. Well, do yourself a favor. Get some amazing mead and help out a really great guy and a really great company. Uh, go to uh, Moonlight Meter's website, put in an order, get a discount, do yourself a favor. Right. And, and again, the, well, the, uh, just to reiterate, the offer code is fight-for-moonlight. Now, all, all uppercase. So fight for Moonlight, and you get your uh, special offer, and you can help support uh, a really wonderful business. There you go. So uh, I guess it's about time to uh, wander over to the library and uh, talk about our new book, huh? Indeed. Let's go to hit the books. <laughs> See you there. We'll be right back. 
boys and girls, welcome to a place where I spent a good portion of my childhood. I come from a family of librarians and teachers, so we are now in the library, and it's time to- Shh, shh, be quiet. We're now in the library, and it's time to talk books. <laughs> yeah, but we've been drinking, so uh, we can talk loud. Yeah, and the last time I checked, the librarian's out, so hey, All right, so uh, this is going to be a sometime segment where we're going to talk about uh, various beer books and various other writings that we really, really enjoy. So we really, 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 really like our own writing, and it's that time. That's right. Homebrew All-Stars is officially releasing on May 1st, so just after we release this podcast. So guess what? You can go get your own special copy of our new special book. But let's talk a little bit about it, (laughs) shall we, Denny? Yeah, let's do. This is a way cool book, which is, of course, what you would expect me to say, but... uh, in my 18 years of homebrewing, I have never seen another homebrewing book like this, and I, it's pretty darn exciting. Uh, basically, what Drew and I did was interview a whole bunch of really great homebrewers, uh, some of them whose names you know, like John Palmer and Gordon Strong and uh, Tasty McDowell, people like that. Some of them are people that you've never heard of, like Lars Garshall. But you should know about these guys because they have some really fascinating information and tips about uh, about brewing. So what we did was we divided these people up by their archetypes, like uh, like the scientists and, and the wild ones for the people who make sour beers, stuff like that. And then asked them about how they brew, their processes, their equipment, their favorite ingredients. We got some recipes from each person. So basically, it's kind of like you get to spend a brew day with a home brewer who thinks like you do and kind of get inside what they're doing and see how it applies to your own brewing. Yeah, and this was really, I think, in a large part inspired by some of the things that we did when we were first starting out brewing uh, in a move that was very uh, atypical and uncharacteristic of the nerd that I am. When I first started brewing... I just started inviting myself along to other people's houses and started brewing with them and really starting to try and pick their brains and observe what it is that they're doing, how it is that they're doing things, why they're doing certain things that they do. And, you know, really my brewing methodology, the things that I do in the brewery are a blend of different adoptions that I've taken away from those people. I think for all the wonderful power of books Uh, One of the truest things that you can say about brewing is that it is one of those skills that is learned almost best by apprenticeship, but also really apprenticeship backed up with a sort of thirst for knowledge. And so what I think we tried to do with this book was take these 25 different homebrewers that we've interviewed and give you a chance to learn from them in a way that you wouldn't from a book. Uh, or a traditional book and to pick up the little things that somebody does and why they do them and turn it into a day, at, uh, a, a day at their brew house. Right. And unlike Drew, I didn't know anybody else who was uh, brewing when I got started. So uh, a lot of my information came from online and uh, from the conventional brewing books that were out. I would have loved to have something like this around to, uh, to help me think through some of the things that I was trying to cope with when I, when I started to brew. The other thing is that 
I just have to really give a shout out to our publisher and our editor, uh, Tom O'Hearn. Um, this is a freaking gorgeous book. There are beautiful pictures of the beers, the equipment, the processes, and uh, it is uh, also time to give a shout out for that to uh, Marshall Schott and his lovely wife, Laura. Marshall staged all the shots with his friends and his own equipment. Laura took the pictures and thanks guys. They look great. Yeah. And I mean, seriously, beautiful book, fantastic content. Uh, I really, really hope that people dig in, uh, get a chance to dig into the book and enjoy it. Uh, we're actually going to use the book as sort of inspiration for some upcoming segments on the show. Uh, but really t- take a moment, re- read through it, take go onto Amazon, do the look inside. And I guarantee you, you're not going to find a prettier beer book or a beer book that's filled with more diverse information. We really spent a lot of time with uh, these individual brewers trying to dig out something that was unique about their particular way of being a brewer and give that information to you. Like I said, it's, it's unlike any other home brewing book you've ever seen in the uh, breadth of the topics that it covers and the, the depth that uh, each person gives to their particular subject. So yeah, 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 yeah. We're, we may be a bit biased, well, but I, I also, happen, I also happen to think that it's the only homebrew book out there that incorporates Jungian philosophy. Yeah. I mean, how often do you get a home brewing book that not only teaches you how to brew, but gets all psychological on you? Woo. Brain shrinking. All right. Anyway, you can buy this book directly from our publisher, Quarto. You can buy it from Amazon. You can buy it from Barnes and Noble. You can buy it just about any place. Finer homebrew books are sold. It's called Homebrew All-Stars, and we really hope you'll check it out. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Yeah, and hey, rumor has it that you might even be able to buy autographed copies before too long. You know, hey, like how it. about that? Yeah, and you particularly can get them at HomebrewCon in Baltimore in June. Yes, right. Drew and I will be there. Books will be sold. We will be autographing. And uh, if you buy a book via Amazon and uh, aren't around where we are, we can send you a book plate that we have both signed to stick inside of it. So it'll be your own little personalized uh, autograph copy. So, okay, we've blown our own horns long enough. Let's head over to the lab and talk about our olive oil results. I have been looking forward to this one. (laughs) It's good. Yeah, we'll be right back. Okay, here we are in the lab, and we're going to talk about our latest experiment where we tested the uh, theory that uh, using olive oil in your wort can replace aeration and do the same kind of thing for you. So uh, before we get into that, though, I want to talk about our IGOR program for a second. IGOR stands for Independent Group of Researchers, and they're the great people out there who uh, actually do the brewing and set up the tasting sessions for these experiments. And we can always use more Igors. We have a lot more experiments coming up. If you would like to get involved in some of them, uh, just go to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Sign up to be an Igor. Look at the list of experiments coming up. Figure out what ones you want to participate in. And uh, we will thank you greatly for your help in those. 
So our experiment today, like I said, is testing the theory that uh, you can use olive oil to aerate a batch of wort uh, prior to fermentation, as opposed to using more traditional aeration techniques. This whole thing came up uh, when a guy by the name of Grady Hall published a paper that he had done for uh, his college research about using olive oil to store yeast uh, and to uh, use it in place of uh, the yeast synthesizing their own sterols, using the olive oil in, in place of that to, uh, to help the yeast uh, stay healthy and uh, keep budding in, uh, in storage. Now, a couple things to take note of here. Grady only studied this in regards to propagators and storage. He did not study at all in terms of using yeast in fermentation. Uh, so the propagators allow for long-term exposure and absorption of sterols, unlike the fermenter, where you just kind of put in some uh, olive oil and let it go. Homebrewers saw this paper and took it to mean geez, we don't need to do any aeration anymore. We can just put some olive oil in without really being too careful about his dosing recommendations or even paying attention to the fact that he had never studied using olive oil in fermenters. Hold on, Danny. Danny, yes. Danny let's, let's be frank about this. What homebrewers saw was an opportunity to be cheap as hell. <laughs> well... Marshall here, and I, and I have to agree with Drew, but I, I, I'm one of those people who likes to be cheap as hell. And uh, but olive oil is one thing that I'll comment on a little later as being maybe a little awkwardly cheap uh, for me. Yeah, right. And to to me, it's like how how expensive is aeration anyway, uh, considering what you really need to do. And I guess this is a really good time for me to mention something I forgot, which is we have our good buddy Marshall Schott, the brewlosopher, with us today to discuss the results of our experiment. Uh, we want to get his take on things too, because we're all kind of like. Uh, science nerds and uh, I want to see what's going on. So whether it was for cheapness, whether it was for laziness, whether it was uh, because they thought they were doing something cool, uh, olive oil became uh, a popular way for homebrewers to think that they were aerating their work prior to fermentation. So before we get into the uh, results of the experiment, we want to uh, Thank our Igors who did the experiment. That's Bearded Brews, Jason Mundy, Randy Peterman, and Jeff the Mossy Owl. God, I love that name, Jeff. Uh, and oh, and thanks to Robert Alloway who grabbed his lab gear and measured out the impossibly tiny 50 microliter olive oil aliquots. Aliquots? Yeah, I was yeah, aliquots. But I was going to say the the funny part was when we first laid out the experiment. We'll talk the experiment here in a second. You know, we, we followed the advice that everybody gave on the internet, right? Which is, oh, you know, dip a needle into the olive oil and drop one drop of olive oil into the fermenter because that's what everybody was thinking. And our Igors uh, decided to be revolting or they were revolting, revolting Igors, something, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, the Igors uh, sort of uh, said, hey, if we're doing beer science, uh, can, can we get a little more precise than uh, a drop? And it was a very good point on their part. And yeah, it, <laughs> the problem was we then spent, uh, well, we spent a little bit of time trying to figure out, okay, so how do we, how exactly do we measure out 50 microliters of olive oil, which is the recommended dose at the high end uh, for the amount of volume that we're talking about here for five gallons of wort. And Robert very kindly stepped up and said, 
I have a microreader and all the parts, and I will make you guys Alec Watson. You shipped them out uh, to me to ship out to all of our part- participants. So that was very nice. Yeah, and it was, and really, uh, it, it, it lended a, a little bit more consistency to the whole experiment. So speaking of which, Drew, why don't you go ahead and talk about the experiment? All right. So uh, the experiment was fairly simple. We decided to go with a um, new Belgium-inspired uh, amber recipe, uh, which made Denny very happy. Whoopee. Uh, but the uh, the idea was... Uh, does the addition of olive oil to a fermenter replicate the organoleptic impact of aeration on a beer versus doing no aeration at all? Uh, and our hypothesis was that the olive oil batch uh, will not be qualitatively different uh, to the no aeration batch. And we used a simplified amber recipe. The simplified amber recipe is available on experimentalbrew.com. But it's basically uh, seven pounds of two row, three pounds of Munich, one and a half pounds of Cara Red, and a half pound of melanoid malt with hopping additions of Magnum and Cascade, and fermented with uh, Y-East 1056 or White Labs 001. So, very neutral uh, style recipe, uh, just a little bit of something interesting. And then we asked the uh, the Igors to take 50 microliters of olive oil, dissolve it in a little bit of vodka, and add it to one half of their batch. So, if they brewed 10, 10 gallons, take 5 gallons of it, add the olive oil to that 5-gallon batch do your regular fermentation, do everything impossible to keep everything the same, same sort of temperature control, same uh, fermenter geometry, package the beers exactly the same, and then hand them off to their uh, tasting victims, <laughs> tasting participants, uh, to uh, go and do an actual, you know, good old-fashioned triangle test. You know, the, sort of the backbone of what a lot of us here doing uh, beer nerdy uh, citizen science are doing. Uh, and so they did, and we had, uh, as Danny said, we had four participants uh, actually uh, set up in front of tasters, and uh, I'm going, before we start to talk the results, let's just talk real quick, the design of the experiment, 50 microliters, as we mentioned earlier, that is the best estimate that we've been able to see for a recommended dose for five gallons at the higher end of this olive oil idea. Remember, the idea is uh, olive oil will provide sterols, which normally in traditional brewing, uh, yeast will pick up from the ox- it will pick up oxygen from the wort and use the oxygen from the wort to generate sterols, uh, sterols to make more flexible cell walls. So again, olive oil replacing that sort of process. And 50 microliters seem to be on the high end of the recommended dosing rate. Yeah, and that's something that's something I want to I want to mention too because we're going to hear from people who go 50 microliters. That is like surpassingly small. That amount can't possibly do anything. Well, remember that was on the high end of the recommended dosage from Grady. Yeah, and we set up this whole experiment to kind of give olive oil the best chance of showing uh, showing an impact. So a higher rate of olive oil or the highest rate of olive oil that we could find recommended. And then on the other side, you know, the next question that a lot of people are going to be like, well, why didn't you test it with an aerated batch as opposed to an, uh, to a non-aerated batch? Well, again, the idea was we wanted to make that, that spread as hard as we could, right? You know, push out to the extremes as much as we could, because then we figure, okay, that's going to be the time that olive oil will get a chance to shine. If it really is an impact, it will be much easier to detect if you're doing it against a no aeration batch versus an aerator. Yeah, and Marshall, I want to hear what you think about that. Uh, do you think that we made the right choice, or would you have gone with it against an aerated batch? I actually would have, uh, and, and I'll be honest with you, I've been getting this 
uh, variable recommended for a brewosophy experiment quite a bit lately, which I think is perfect timing for, for you guys doing this. Uh, and in the design that we would have done, it would have been a completely non-aerated batch. Okay, so that's exactly right. what so, we did yeah. also. So good. Exactly. I agree with what, the Great, way it was man. done. Great, sure. man. I'm glad to know that we're all on the same page there because, again, when we just put it out, people were going, why don't you do it against an aerated batch? It's like, but – if if olive oil works, then doing it against a non-aerated batch should show us the greatest difference between the two. Exactly. All right. So now, shall we dive into let's the results do, or the let's other do, questions because we should answer? I just want to point out again, for those of you who didn't hear the experiment announcement, Drew and I were pretty certain we knew how this one was going to come out. And we swore that if we were wrong, we would each drink a six-pack of fat tire to uh, atone for our <laughs> sins. Uh and so, Drew, are we going to be drinking beer? Well, I'm going to tell you, looking at our results, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about some splits because we like to do splits here and discuss the results and all of their oddities and strengths. Uh, we had four tasting flights in the initial uh, tasting panels. Uh, they did uh, a total of 53 tasters, of which we would have to have 24 successfully identify the different beer in order to achieve a p-value that shows significance. Now, out of those four tasting panels that were run, the 53 tasters, uh, I am looking here and I show that only 18 were able to correctly identify the odd beer out, giving a p-value of 0.51, which pretty much means that there is no discernible significant difference. So that means, or at least it indicates that. That means that we will not be pouring frosty cold fat tires for ourselves anytime soon. Uh, and I think, I think most importantly, this is the first experiment that we've run uh, and done the announcement for the results where the results were actually uh, all in agreement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, other, t- other times we've had some people show a significance. Other times we've had people not show. And this is the first time where the results are consistent across the board. So for those of you who uh, might have missed it there, the results of this experiment basically show us that using olive oil to aerate a batch, I'm doing air quotes here. Using olive oil to aerate a batch is about the same as doing absolutely nothing to aerate a batch. Uh, Marshall, you surprised by that? I'm uh, I'm not surprised at all. And it actually uh, the fact that the beers that were unaerated still attenuated well, presumably, and came out okay, kind of makes me wonder about the necessity of aeration on a homebrew scale when you know healthy pitches of yeast and whatnot are being used uh, in general. Excellent, excellent point there, man. Uh, You know, we all know that the purpose of aeration is to encourage yeast cell growth. So maybe if you're pitching a reasonable amount of very healthy yeast to start with, aeration is not as big a deal as we've always thought it was. I mean, that's kind of what this experiment is saying, isn't it? Yeah, and we've done, on Brewlosophy, we've actually done uh, two experiments where we are comparing a batch hit with pure o2 and those aren't cheap you know pieces of equipment um and it and we've we haven't been able to produce a distinguishable result uh either compared to non-aerated beer i mean (laughs) it's pretty interesting my my uh kind of progression through aeration has been that i started with one of those uh well actually i started with nothing then i picked up one of the uh tanks and stones and after using it a few times, didn't notice any difference whatsoever in my beer. Uh, 
I went ahead then and bought a mixer uh, aerator, the gasser uh, rod, to stick on my drill. And that seemed to give me about equal results with everything else. These days, I use yep. a pump and pump the wort into my fermenter. And it's pretty foamy by the time it gets into that bucket. So I do absolutely nothing further after that. Uh, and, you know, I... What can I say? The results speak for themselves, huh? Yeah, these ones certainly seem to. And, you know, I, I guess how many people out there really expected olive oil to have a, a you know, a, a real noticeable impact on the beer? I, I think some of these variables that we test are, are really to kind of um, have a little bit of fun in our brewing and see if maybe there, you know, if there's a difference, we're all surprised, but it's olive oil. <laughs> I think it goes a little bit better with balsamic vinaigrette <laughs> and a crusty bread, personally. So... Well, Which, hey, Drew, new beer idea. New there you go. <laughs> hey, uh, uh, Don't I can, do that, I can man, please. <laughs> oh, I would love to see you drink that, oh, Denny. no, you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Olive oil, garlic, oregano. Yeah, oh, I can yeah do that. I'm sure you could. Piece That's the problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, now, I mean, I, I totally agree. I think that there's something here that we're now it's time to start pursuing, you know, sort of a further breakdown of the aeration studies. Because, yeah, I, I've read the ones that you guys have done on brewlosophy about uh, aeration and oxygenation versus nothing. And honestly, I think this falls into the category of where we've talked about before that for home brewers, best practices are not necessarily always the best practices that we find in the pro level. And also the fact that, I mean, look, a lot of the stuff that we do as home brewers is not only influenced by what happens in the commercial breweries, but it's also influenced by the history of home brewing where for a very long time, our ingredients were kind of crap mm-hmm. and our yeast health practices were crap and our fermentation control practices were crap. And so at that point in time, yeah, if you're dealing with that sort of thing and you've got lower viability strains and all that, then a lot of this stuff is going to have a much greater impact. Now I'm not saying that none of this has impact, but I'm saying it has a much greater impact when, when you have lower quality situations, like I think homebrewers did even 10 years yeah. ago. Yeah, I no, I agree, and and, and the uh, you know I think I think there's a lot of of thanks to the advancements that that you know have been made in brewing in general. Homebrewers are no longer forced to you know um, utilize what I refer to as remnants from our less advanced brewing past. You know, the, the, these ideas made sense when, frankly things sucked, you know, <laughs> when we yeah, had right. ingredients and, and, and we didn't, we didn't have a great understanding of the brewing process. And I think, you know, a, a dude like me saying, saying that sometimes gets taken as, Oh, so you're recommending that we just let everything go and not, no, I'm not saying that, but I think it's worth considering why we did it before and why we might not need to today. And I'll admit, I've never even touched an oxygen tank and I've made over 500 batches of beer. And in all of those, I've had one stalled fermentation and the beer still tasted fine. So it's not like, you know, anecdotally for me, I, I, that's all the proof I need. I mean, I, every, everyone I know who uses oxygen makes great beer as well, but it, you yeah, know, uh, I yeah, can, I, yeah, I agree. And that's kind of why I went through my progression because when I found out that the beers that I was making without using an oxygenation system were tasting just the same as the beers I made when I used one, it's kind of like, why am I going to the hassle and the expense? And to get yeah. back to your point, too, for me, a lot of it comes down to pragmatism. As I've said many, many, many times, I'm probably one of the laziest people in the world. 
And I don't want to do anything that isn't going to pay off for me. I mean, I'll do anything it takes to get better results in my beer, but I'm also going to be carefully assessing what happens when I do it. And if I don't get better results, I'm not going to waste my time doing it, no matter what the conventional wisdom and popular opinion says. Amen, brother. <laughs> Amen. Well, and, and, and I'm also guessing now that, uh, now that I've got a little more time to cogitate on the matter, that Another part of the reason why we may not necessarily see so much of an impact here is a big difference in practice between homebrewers and pro brewers is the amount of times that we're reusing things like yeast, right? You think about it in the pro brewing world, you're reusing your yeast culture again and again and again, because how often do you want to call white labs or white yeast to go get a multi-barrel pitch? Yeah, that's an right. expense that, that if you can, if you can do transfers, makes a lot of sense. So there, your yeast health is actually probably a much greater factor than it is for homebrewers who, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to, you know, I, I tend to not brew often enough that I can go and pick up a yeast cake and go reuse it all the time. You know? Right. And so I think, I'm, I'm guessing that may also be an explanation for part of this difference that we're seeing. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a, uh, I think that's a good explanation. The, the thing that I continually think of is volume and the volumetric differences between even a one barrel, you know, a nano brewer and a five gallon home brewer. Uh, the, the yeast doesn't have to work that hard to contact all of the wort. You know, the sugars are right there. We're, we're over pitching really. I mean, you know, based on the amounts that, that pro brewers are pitching, um, you know, we, we have the ability to pitch a ton of yeast and it, 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 and it, you know, saturates the wort within a minute, you know, right. and I have to think that something about something about the, the different volumes and I, I can't speak, you know, very scientifically about this, but there's something there that makes it different for professional brewers, larger scale. You know, if I was a, if I had a one barrel brewing system, I might invest in a, in an oxygen setup, but at five gallons, I just, you know, I'm not going to add olive oil either. Well, so. And then, and then the consequences too, right? If, if something screws up due to the fact that, uh, that we didn't aerate a batch, we are losing a, a few bucks and five gallons of beer. If a commercial brewery loses 20 barrels or more, it's a, a, a much bigger deal for them. But again, the results seem to point out that that ain't going to be the, the issue, at least for us, uh, because of the amounts of yeast we pitch and because we generally are pretty careful to pitch healthy yeast. Well, I think we've I think we've beaten the the yeast side to death. Let's talk some uh, some more about the results that we're seeing here because one I, I think we're all in agreement uh, that we're not surprised that there isn't a difference between olive oil and no aeration, or at least in this particular experiment there wasn't a discernible difference. Right. Um, but I did want I did want to uh, talk a little bit because uh, you know in the past with these experiments we've always had outliers, right? This time we don't really have so much an outlier as much as we had. Uh, uh, Jeff, aka the Mossy Al, reported back to us that when he did the experiment, he uh, his results. Looking at the sheet, he actually went and did this twice because first time he did a tasting, he did it with thirteen tasters, and six of them correctly identified the different beer. Mm -hmm. And he was a little, uh, he was, I think he was a little surprised that he had six that managed to detect the difference. Now, by the way, that six is still too few to actually show significance. So he was still uh, consistent with everybody's everybody's results, but he got he got a little um, uh, a little concerned and went back and looked at the the two beers, which is a good thing being scientifically minded. 
Uh, if things don't meet your expectations, go examine if there's a reason for it. And what he found was he had taken his beers and uh, carbonated them via carbonator caps. And, you know, in small PET bottles, like what you do, Denny, with your uh, gravity mm-hmm. samples. And he stressed to me in email, I've gone through great pains to, you know, make everything in my brew system for these experiments as duplicative as possible, right? Same kettle, same, uh, you know, same kettle, same fermenters, you know, all this stuff where he's really tightly controlling for, you know, keeping everything the same sort of gear. And then he said that he noticed that with his carbonator caps, he had carbonated three bottles of beer, two of them with metal carbonator caps and one with a plastic carbonator cap. And the plastic carbonator cap was leaking slightly. And it turned out that that was the beer that was different. So he, he was, he was concerned that what they what the tasters were noticing was that the beers, the beer that was different, they were noticing it because it was different carbonation level. So just yesterday, he actually went back, recarbonated the beers uh, with the correct CO2 level in each of them and presented to a much smaller tasting panel because he had a beer festival going on yesterday and so couldn't grab more people. And he did it with six tasters yesterday, of which only two successfully identified the beer for a much lower percentage and a much higher p-value showing, uh, indicating even less chance of, or indicating uh, non-significance because I think his p-value was like 0.649 that time. It was uh, uh, a ways away from uh, the significant area. So I thought that was kind of interesting that he actually took the time to figure out, okay, why, why is this not meeting my expectations? Is there a, is there an explanation for this? Remember in the past we've talked about, okay, sometimes with these results, is there a difference in the beer? Is there a difference in the packaging? Is there, is there some other variable that's being exposed that people are seeing? And Jeff actually went back to go double check and see if there was a variable that was being exposed and found this carbonation issue. So thanks Jeff. We appreciate it. So there you, yeah, very cool. there you go. That's the results of the olive oil versus no aeration experiment. And to sum it up once again, using olive oil in your beer will give you just about the same effect as doing no aeration whatsoever. Uh, we want to thank Marshall for joining us again today. I can't wait to have you back, buddy. It's always fun. It's always fun to be on. Thanks a lot well, again, guys. We really appreciate your insights, um, and uh, I guess we'll see you at NHC. Maybe we can hook up and do a joint experiment there. Oh, I'll be there. <laughs> I'm so excited. Yep, you're doing a seminar. We're doing seminars. We'll all be there, so we hope we'll see some of you people out there at NHC also, and uh We'll be right back after a quick break. Wait, hold on, Denny, before yes. we go. Yes? Don't you mean homebrew con? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> homebrew, they, they stole Denny's last name for the new name, I, I, I hear. Yeah, so. and I still don't like it. Ho- homebrew con. Okay, <laughs> now we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. This episode, we're bringing you an interview that I did when I was in Dallas a couple months back with Barrett Tillman. Now, if you don't know Barrett, uh, you'd be forgiven because Barrett is kind of a soft-spoken man, as you'll discover in the interview. Uh, but Barrett was an IT guy and a home brewer. I know. Everybody be shocked. An IT guy who was a home brewer. And 
got deeply, deeply passionate about sour beers and wild beers and bacteria and everything else. Passionate enough to the point that uh, not only did he leave the IT industry and become a brewer and kind of manages these special sour beer projects for Deep Ellum Brewing Company in Dallas, uh, which is a really awesome uh, brew pub and uh, a fun little space to explore. They make some really great beer. But he also launched a special yeast company called Black Man Yeast, and where he actually sells dried sour beer cultures, uh, dried blends of lactobacillus and pediococcus and yeast. Uh, it got a couple of different strains. We talk about them in the interview. Uh, Barrett is really, really incredibly awesome. He's really passionate, but in that very kind of soft-spoken way. Now, just to preface what you're going to hear, uh, when we did this interview, we were in a the back room of a defunct liquor store that Deep Ellum bought and is turning into their sour beer room and barrel room. And so this liquor store that we were in was completely empty, but still full of liquor posters and beer, uh, beer posters. And we were sitting in the old manager's office behind the cold box. So we're a little echoey there. And also I really have to commend Barrett because he was sick as a dog on this day that well, when we were interviewing, but it was my last day in Dallas. So he made an effort to get out there and come in so that he could just uh, talk to our little podcast. So without further ado, let's go talk to Barrett. All right, everybody. Hi, I'm Drew. You know me, the host of this podcast, and I'm sitting here in Deep Ulm, Texas, the suburb of Dallas or neighborhood of Dallas, I guess. Uh, and I'm sitting here with Barrett Tillman, uh, who brews for Deep Ellum Brewing Company and is probably uh, also really well known for being the sour beer guy. <laughs> so, sour beer guy. Sour beer guy. <laughs> All right. So, uh, but yeah, so I'm, like I said, I came here and I figured we had to have uh, some homebrewing content while I was here in Dallas. And Barrett has a lot of knowledge on sour beers and uh, sour yeast. And why don't you tell the people a little bit about yourself and what you do for Deep Elm as well? Oh, nice. Well, thanks for the opportunity just to come and chit-chat with you guys. I, I consider it a blessing. Um, I, I think that, you know, the way that I approach beer is just for myself first and then see where that, see where that goes. So when, when I started with um, Deep Elm, they brought me in to do sours and their barrel program. So I'll be doing all of their, their barrels as well as all of the sours. Um, and a couple of them have, have already hit the market already. Um, we have the Playdate, which is a kettle sour Blondale. Um, that one has a, a little bit of fruit in it. It has um, the Majo dates in it. And then um, here recently, we're, we're gonna release the um, barrel aged cherry chocolate double brown stout. Cherry yeah. chocolate. That's gonna be a real interesting beer. <laughs> yeah, so that that'll be the first release in the 2016 series, and then you know, like just for shits and grins, the first beer that I did for Deep Ellum that was from their their barrels was a barrel aged coffee beer. Mm -hmm. That one was fun because it had um, star anise and mustard seed in it, as well as the coffee. So. A little bit, a little bit of extra spice. A little bit of a stretch, yeah. <laughs> and, and, how, and how was that received? Oh, it was, it was well received. You know, the the mustard seed just enhanced the flavor. You know, some sometimes you know when you have a coffee beer, mm -hmm. you just kind of miss out on on some of the the nuances mm -hmm. of it, and so the the spiciness from the mustard seed just kind of helped to enhance that. And then the star anise just gave it this kind of licorice note that mm -hmm. picked up the body on it. 
But yeah, that, that's kind of like using the spices to uh, recreate the experience. It's a lot of like what I talk about when doing deconstruction and reconstruction of flavors. Yes. So that's a, that's very cool. And and how long you been have you been working with Deep Ellum? Like a year? I started with Deep Ellum on October of last year. Okay. So it's been it's been full bore ever since then. Yeah. But now, but now you've I mean, you've been kicking around, you know, both homebrewing and and the professional brewing world. For yeah, a while, right? I I pushed back from the desk and decided that I would I'd give, you know, like the beer world a, a year, mm-hmm. and if if I could make it or flop, you know, I'd see where I was at in a year. And um, my first job was working here in in Bishop Arts for a cidery called Bishop Cider, mm-hmm. and um, that that was that was fun, you know. Got to really get the the passion for cider, and then switched over and had to work a little bit extra. Mm-hmm. So I, I then did some gypsy brewing, just kind of all over, um, and was able to have some fun with my friends. You know, it's a small brewing community, so what it really is is like, hey, you got some time on your brew kettle? Let me come in and brew something. You know, it might take a little longer than we planned, but. <laughs> We'll try to get it out to the market. But I promise it won't be boring. Hell yeah, nothing boring. You know, anytime you're you're throwing bacteria in somebody's kettle, you know, everybody's on on edge. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, so where where we're sitting right now, we are in what's going to be Deep Ellum's barrel house and distillery and sour beer project space, right? Yes. And so this is like, uh, since you all can't see where we are, we are in what was the back office of a liquor store uh, down here in Deep Ellum. And we yes. got, we got, can hear a couple barrels up in the, up in the front uh, doing their magic. Yes. And so you, you have your own little playground and, and obviously your own safety zone to play with uh, sour, uh, sour critters. Yeah, we, we like to keep things separate. <laughs> You're not alone. Yeah, so we have, we have uh, a Brett Pellel that, that I'm working on. Um, one of the most interesting beers I'm working on right now is one that's called Freak Flag. Mm-hmm. It'll be an uh, American Red Ale, mm-hmm. but it'll be modeled in the Flemish style. So an American Flanders. Yeah, an American Flanders, you know, to take that. Because, you know, Flanders aren't really known for being American. Yeah. They're, they're known for having their own, you know, like Belgian kind of characteristics. So. We'll we'll change it up a little bit. You know, the acid will probably be straightforward in the in the front, and then after that you'll get the malt, right. and then and then we might layer in some some hops to finish it out with, give it a, a brightness on the on the nose. And just and, bring, uh, just bring around that American quality, right? Yeah, we're we're committed to that to that beer. So my my timeline on that one is whenever it's ready. <laughs> and, and do you have a do you have a rough feel, or are you just you thinking it's still going to take some more duration? It's going, but it's going to take a while. Um, right now, it's it's probably in a, a little ropey phase for mm-hmm. the pediococcus. You know, um, the last time I checked it, it was it was last week, and it was still sitting at ten twenty. You mm. know, it'll probably get down to about ten sixteen and then stop. Gravity wise, and then clean up and get less sick. And well, well, then it'll the yeast would have chewed through all of the the super fermentables, and then it would would kind of go through the phase where it's it's just aging mm-hmm. with the bacteria and stuff, and so the relationship between the malt and the and the acid will be what I look for after that. And, and that will be that will be what you when you say now. 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, obviously, I mean, you've been homebrewing for a while too before you before you yes. got to the, the professional side. Because I know when I first heard of you, like people were like, "Oh yeah, Barrett does these really great, great sour th- beers, and he wins all sorts of medals, and you know, he's just a really awesome brewer." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, when did you get started with homebrewing? Wow, I I don't remember. I just I just know that it was it was one day he woke up and went I'm Christmas Eve, you know, <laughs> Christmas Eve. My my buddies were were gonna brew, and I was like, hey, I'll come by and, and brew with you. And we made a we made a saison while the ladies were shopping for Christmas Eve, and mm-hmm. we were in a garage brewing. And um, from that moment on, you know, making beer was just kind of my passion. There you go. You know, <laughs> so make strange and esoteric things. <laughs> Well, all right. Uh, so let's let's talk. What's the, what do you think is the the strangest, most esoteric thing you've done? Wow. Okay. So um, I made a beer with um, yeast from Wild Texas persimmons. Okay. And um, that was the first beer that that anyone has ever had an allergic reaction to. <laughs> <laughs> because the microflora from Texas was was very strong in that one. And um, and my buddy who had that one, he's from California, mm-hmm. and he he's typically good for any kind of beers, but he he was new to Texas, and um, he immediately started sneezing, and and I was like, okay, you know, you can't have that beer. <laughs> yeah. And whatever you do, don't go to where the wild persimmons are. But about three years later, you know, he had that beer again, and it was one of his favorites. Yeah. So when you. Uh, to make it a wild persimmon beer, I mean, so make a wort, no, no direct yeast inoculation, and what just drop yes. persimmons into it and mm-hmm. let them do their thing. Yeah, I I like to approach it a little bit differently, mm-hmm. um, meaning I like to wash the fruit first, mm-hmm. just like you you would see, you know, like winemakers mm-hmm. being like really be selective in the fruit that they choose, um, because you know if you if you put mold in it, that mold is just going to grow. So you know, I try to keep it keep it clean that way. Well, it seems like most of the most of the critters that you're really interested in anyway are living kind of in the fruit, right? Yeah. So I mean, yeah, if you clean, if you're scrubbing things off the surface, it's not a, a huge deal. Mm-hmm. So what what I'll suggest people to do is, you know, like just soak their fruit in a in a light salt bath. Mm-hmm. You know, three percent salt solution. Mm-hmm. You know, it it seems fairly high, but it keep it cold. That way, you're not leaching out a lot of your your fruit flavor. Mm-hmm. And use that salt solution to wash your fruit, and then after you wash your fruit, carry your fruit over to bucket, crush it up, and stuff like that. Put some wort on top of it and let it go. And so, three uh, percent salt solution will kill off mold and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's cool to know. That's good. Yeah, but it'll it'll keep you safe on the yeast side because it, it won't knock out your yeast. So that's good. Yeah, there cool you go. Hey, salt. I just learned something, guys. That's that's pretty awesome. <laughs> All right, so walking through some of the, some of my questions, I like to torture people with. Okay, what's your favorite curse word? My favorite curse word, probably fuck. <laughs> That's about. It seems to be about ninety five percent of brewers' favorite words. I, I suspect they use it all the time. <laughs> yeah, I try. I try not to use those words often, but I do. <laughs> well, but, you know, just like with the star anise in your coffee beer, you know, sometimes a little spice is helpful in language. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now we talked about when you discovered homebrewing, you know, and accidentally suddenly became a homebrewer without realizing it. Yes. When, when did you first discover uh, quote unquote good beer? 
Wow. Well, I, I first discovered bad beer. Um, I wanted to I wanted to make a, a um, kettle sour beer mm -hmm. without any control. Mm -hmm. You know, like I was gonna sour in the kettle on the grains and stuff like that. Pull the liquid over and boil it, and that may have been the worst decision I ever made in my life. And then when, when that happened, it's like you know what? It's gonna get better in a year. Let that beer sit around for a year. It's like yeah, it's still not better. <laughs> Sometimes a mistake is just a mistake. <laughs> so after after that experience, you know, I quickly learned to pour, you know, like projects that didn't turn out well just down the drain, you know, and, and save the refrigeration space for good beer, mm -hmm. you know. And good good beer was, was typically beer that kind of followed the model that, that I wanted. Um, but but it, it, it may not have been correct, but it was closer to what I envisioned. Like I, I, I just did a prickly pear saison, mm -hmm. and um, when when I first did that that beer, it was a really good um, light kind of easy saison. Mm -hmm. So the next round, I wanted it to have more phenol. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll bump up the the temperature. Mm -hmm. Well, I bumped up the temperature, and I didn't really like it anymore. <laughs> so it wasn't a bad beer, no. But I learned something. But it wasn't what you wanted. Yeah. So. That, that's the difference between good beer and bad beer for me now. All right. Well, no, we kind of touched on it a little bit, but uh, so omitting the word balance, so not mm -hmm. using the word balance. Okay. Describe your brewing philosophy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> every every brewer I ask that, they, they have that same reaction, like, oh, damn. <laughs> is that, is that... Because there there's two different ways of approaching it, right? Is that on the malt side, on the hop side, or on the aged side? Well, you, you tell me, like, when you when you sit, when Barrett sits down to go design a recipe, mm -hmm. or design a beer, you know, like your, your Brett Pale Ale that, that mm -hmm. you're working on, or your American Flanders, what what drives, you know, kind of how you're designing it, what the, you know, your choices, your, you know, what you're going to do in the, in the brew house, what you're going to do in the fermentation house, they're like an I guess what what I'm shooting for is is clarity, clarity. you know, um, because some I think that sometimes sours can be confusing, you know, they can they can have too much going on, mm -hmm. so I I typically approach it from acid first, mm -hmm. and then from the acid I'll go into the malts, and then when I'm when I'm looking at at the malts, then I have to decide how I'm going to bitter it. You know, and the the bittering can kind of come into play in the flavor mm -hmm. or in the in the base. If it's if it's if the bittering is is too far in the base, I kind of really don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. But if it's if it's brought forward where I can actually taste some of the hops, then I start to worry about it with the sour beer, mm -hmm. because I w I would like to to see those hops age, mm -hmm. and sometimes those those late additions, those finishing additions of hops. They don't age well, you know. They they just kind of muddy up my beer. So to do something like a like a Brett Pell um, here for for Deep Ellum, the, the the go with that beer would would to, would be clarity, you know, to have to have a pale base and then some acid or some complexity on top of that, and then to finish it out with with the notes of the bread. You know. So so it sounds like. What you what you really are looking for is you want that kind of clean expression. 
Some that people true? call it nuance. Yeah. yeah. I like nuance in, in my beer. So. Well, nuance just makes you sound fancy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nuance. I'm just going to keep saying that. Hi, <laughs> uh, my name is Nuance. Oh, yeah, Barrett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So, what beer do you find yourself longing to drink? Wow. I guess when I when I go home, it would probably be a triple. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because the triple can have these wide ranges, and um, it, it can it can be um, malt forward, mm-hmm. or it can be um, alcohol forward, mm-hmm. and then some of them have spicy notes too. So if if I'm if I'm ever going to just need a a beer that I I want to learn something from, it's going to be a triple. Do you um, have a favorite? Triple Carmelite. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's yeah, it's really hard to go wrong with one. I'm not sure I've ever had a bad bottle. Vindavu is good too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now let's see. Uh, we we asked we talked about the most unusual beer thing you've done, uh, and I would say that your uh, kettle sour in the uh, kettle would probably qualify as the worst thing to happen to you while brewing, unless oh, you've yes. done something <laughs> worse. There, there are stories about that beer. <laughs> stories. <laughs> Baird is not allowed in certain places because of that beer or something. Yes. <laughs> I didn't I didn't serve it the finished product to anyone. <laughs> Just the smell from the bowl kettle boiling, you know. Well stinky. Well <laughs> mash <yeah>. wort. <laughs> like I can I, I can only imagine because I mean like I've I've done the classic lazy brewer thing before where you know it's like I brewed a batch of beer, I drank a bunch of beer while I was brewing the batch of beer. I got done to the end of the day and went, I'm not cleaning the mash on up because I've had too much beer. And then wake up the next day and even like, you know, 24 hours later, gone and opened up the cooler and gone, oh, dear baby Jesus, what the hell happened in there? So I can only imagine what the what the kettle sour smelled like. Butyric. Oh. That's, that's one word for it. Butyric. Butyric. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's another good one. Now you need to have a beer name that's uh, Nuance Butyric. <laughs> just to make watch people's reaction like the people who actually know what Butyric is and they'll, they'll go why did he name the beer that <laughs> alright um, so what common wisdom brewing practice do you think is either wrong or people have overinflated concerns about oh um, I think that people have a, a scare of Pediococcus mm-hmm. um, and I think Pediococcus done right is can can help you, um, especially for its diacetyl component. Mm-hmm. Um, and we usually try to shy away from diacetyl, um, but the diacetyl can give a good beer body. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if you're thinking a sour beer that kind of thins out over time. Mm-hmm. That that diacetyl component can add some body to it. Um, so yeah, I, I think that people should not fear pediococcus. So that I'm I'm not alone in my pediococcus fan. Well, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, you, you definitely, in terms of a lot of the wild uh, brewers I've talked to or sour brewers, you know, yeah, it, it seems like the the big theme I'm hearing from a lot of people is, oh, we, we really like lactic, 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 you know, mm-hmm. we want the lactic uh, flavors, but no, no pediococcus, pediococcus bad. Yes. And, and, and I, th- I think part of that is just, uh, I mean, at least to me, I think there's a fear that a lot of brewers have about once you get pediococcus into a place, trying to get it out, 
right? You know, yes. They get they get all uh, all woogie about pediococcus living on in the brewery. Oh yeah, I mean, I would say just dedicate a, a bottling bucket to it and bottle directly from that bucket, mm-hmm. and, and you just infect that one thing in your brew house, then call it a day. Oh, so actually, instead of instead of having the beer with pediococcus in a fermenter, actually have it in like a bottling bucket, and that's that's where you're doing your pedio. Yeah. And that way you don't have to worry about it carrying over in your brew house. Like I said, you can add priming sugar to it and, and bottle directly out of that bucket. Yeah. Um, now, I know some people, you know, they, when they talk about pediococcus, like, the, the other thing that people have an issue with it is not just, you know, fear of it destroying the brewery mm-hmm. but, and getting into everything that they, they've, they've been making. But a lot of people also complain about trying to get pediococcus to actually establish itself, right? Mm-hmm. Like, hey, look, I went and I pitched this the pediococcus blend from Y-Yeast or White Labs or whoever, and the PDO never went anywhere, just kind of thudded. Yes. Uh, now, you experience that? How do you get around it? Or do you, you think people are overblowing that too? I would, I would definitely say that the dusting that you get from, you know, like the, the wet yeast mm-hmm. is just simply not enough. You do have to culture it up mm-hmm. somehow. And, um, you know, like the classic rule of thumb would be you know, by, by tens, you know, mm-hmm. you just do it by tens and let it, let it grow that way. Um, and, but, and for the audience, if you don't know what that means, is like basically go into, a, go into a small volume of work and then when it's done fermenting that, Increase it by tenfold. So if you start with ten milliliters, the next the next piece is a hundred milliliters, and then into a thousand milliliters, that sort of thing, right? Yes. All right, cool. And that's the that's the easiest way to make sure you're you're constantly in the growth phase. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're really not concerned about the growth phase, you can you can um, take your your vowel and just pitch it into a hundred mils mm-hmm. and let it go longer. You know, that works too. Um, but at, at that is not is not it doesn't happen as fast actually because mm-hmm. you're you're not getting doubling from right. um, each time so your your count will be lower um, but yeah I would say at least bring it up to a thousand mil mm-hmm. before you pitch it in because otherwise it's you don't have enough for it to do anything right and it, and it hits the it hits the work and osmotic pressure does its magic and, mm-hmm. and I'm looking at at pitching you know like ninety five billion. Cell mm-hmm. counts into five gallons of wort. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that that's a good number for bacteria. And one of the things that I like about PDO is PDO has a sticky acid in comparison to uh, lactobacillus. Lactobacillus has like a, a sharp acid that mm-hmm. just kind of doesn't stick around, but pediococcus it, it has an acid that that sticks around. So I, I, that's a, that's the real reason why I like that one more. Well, I was gonna say I think. Maybe it plays into the diastole thing that you were talking about earlier, but it feels like when you have a sour beer with a fair PDO character to it, uh, yeah, the overall acid character and the overall feel of the beer is richer and mm-hmm. it's more complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you still have that acidity, but it feels more mellow, and that's probably you know like the diastole or some other body component, like some like glyceride or something. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's involved in there. So yeah, I t- totally get what you're going with the the PDO. All right. Um, so, what interesting discovery have you made about brewing, or what do you think isn't paid enough attention to in the in the brewing process? On the homebrew scale. Oh, okay. Um, I w- I would say, on the homebrew scale, um, 
you're you're trying to save every ounce of work that you make. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. I mean, don't don't move over everything. Just move over enough to transfer over clear beer. Mm-hmm. You know, and then when you rock it again, move it over so you can transfer clear beer. So that when you when you present somebody with a pint of your homebrew, it's not cloudy beer. It's mm-hmm. crystal clear, commercial quality, commercial looking beer. Mm-hmm. And it tastes like everything that you you put in a kettle. So you know, like instead of making five gallons, make six. Mm-hmm. And then when you when you're cooling and you're racking over, you know, leave the truck behind. Mm-hmm. And then when you're when you're racking over off the yeast cake, you leave that behind. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll you'll end up with the with enough beer. <laughs> well, particularly if you're home brewing, you know, eventually it seems like you're constantly cycling, you know, brewing anyway, and the beer just starts stockpiling naturally. Yes. Um, so I'm just going to, I think, to summarize, there are two things I'm going to guess. One is uh, Barrett wants you to embrace the philosophy of the Buddha and understand that loss is, you know, part of reality. And the other one is, I'm just going to take a wild guess that you're not a fan of the uh, new uh, New England IPA trend. Oh, murky beers. Not at all. <laughs> I don't. I don't like yeast slurries in my glass. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted beer, not orange juice. Damn it. Yes. Where did that come from? I think that's uh, Hetty Topper and Trillium and all those guys. Wow. Uh, most uh, most of what I've read and played with, and I'm, I'm working on this as well, is. Really, a lot of people think it's an interaction between particular strains of yeast, so like uh, 1318 London 3, mm-hmm. and the various Conan strains that are out there, which I think are supposed to be from 1318, but whatever. The Northeast. Yeah. Um, that, there being a biotransformation that happens between the yeast and these particularly new variety of hops with their high levels of oils. And that combining together forms, you know, sort of glycerol compounds and haze, other haze-induced compounds, and gives you that sort of weird, murky, shine a light, light up a room with a lamp type of beer. Mm-hmm. So, who knows? I, you know, I've had some of them. Some of them are enjoyable. Some of them I look at and go, really? <laughs> no, but you know, it's beer. You know, there there are different strokes for different folks, and some people really love it. So there you go. That being said, I haven't had one. Um, well, I mean, the problem is now, like particularly with things like Hetty, yeah, there's so much hype uh, hype around the beer. Just like say, like uh, plenty of the elder, plenty of the younger. That you know, when you when you finally do have it, you're kind of like, yeah, okay. And you know, it's like, well, that didn't live up to what I was expecting, but you know, nothing's ever going to. I do like I do like that kind of trends. You know, it it lets us as brewers know the world around us is paying attention. Mm-hmm. You know, like to to what we do what we create. You know, it's it's inspirational. Um, I I do like like that. I mean, coming at this thing from home brewing to to now, you know, I can definitely say that that I'm I'm inspired to continue to make beer that I enjoy and that I like. You know, because yeah. that huge following of people are like, yeah, I want to try your beer. Like, okay, here you go. <laughs> so it, it, it sounds like you'll feel really proud if you if you turn around one day and realize that there's a trend of coffee beers with uh, star anise and, and mustard. mustard seed. <laughs> I'd feel like I started that. <laughs> I, I would suspect if that actually happened, you would be right on that one. Yeah, we, it, it, that would totally have to go in the history books. As this is the Barrett process for coffee beer. That beer was re- well received, actually. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and and, and uh, what's the the 
there's a Belgian beer like Wooshteen or Mustard or whatever that has mustard seeds and like used to come with a, a bottle of mustard attached to the to the beer. I haven't had that beer. Yeah, it, it's one of those weird little obscure Belgian beers that must come from like somebody's garage. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the Lucky Baldwin's Pub in my in my neighborhood uh, usually will have it around. That's good. So, all right. Uh, so obviously, you know, being a brewer, you've got ingredients in your head. Mm-hmm. So let's do the quick rundown. What's your favorite malt? Favorite malt is going to be Munich. Munich. Anybody? Anybody's in particular, or just do you like the Munich family? I like the Munich family. I would say um, it really de- depends on what I what I want mm-hmm. to do with it. Um, Marisotter would be another one. Um, man, I, I, I love malts. <laughs> well, so particularly with Munich, since that was your first uh, your first response, mm-hmm. what is it that you love? What I like about the the Munich and probably it's going to be Weirman, mm-hmm. um, the light Munich, is I can I can use that with the with the pale two row or something like that, and really add a layer of of complexity to the malt bill without technically changing a malt bill mm-hmm. um, and so it'll it'll give me more pronounced maltiness mm-hmm. you know like without adding too much you know without adding too, too much for sweetness yes yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm happy that it seems that more people are adopting a Munich Ford philosophy than a crystal Ford philosophy yes yeah you know, I think that's a much better flavor all right your favorite hop my favorite hop. Wow, that's a that's a difficult question. Like I said, not, particularly nowadays with all the variety. Yeah. And okay, I'm I'm gonna say one that, that I love, mm-hmm. and you don't you don't see it all all that often. Okay. And I, I wish that we we see this hop more often. So that's what I'm gonna say it. Yeah. And that's um North Down. North Down. Yes. Birch hop. North Down is is a is a nice hop for just about everything. Because um, it has a little bit of noble characteristics and it has the British characteristics, um, and I, I think a, a substitute for it would be Challenger. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, 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 I like Challenger as well. Yeah. Now, uh, would you would you say that Northdown has Fuggle-like characteristics? In which case, we more make, EKG. More EKG. All right, good. Denny won't scream as much. He, he, <laughs> he, he considers Fuggles the Fuggles to be uh, somewhat akin to adding dirt to your kettle. Oh wow. <laughs> not a fan apparently who knew all right and uh then let's say uh what's your favorite yeast and why is it black man yeast oh <laughs> my my favorite yeast is definitely going to be black man yeast i mean you didn't what, what i like about the the four different strains and i'm still learning about them myself is um it seems like every time i i brew something with them it it teaches me something um, the one that, that I'm learning the most from now is the F4 mix, mm-hmm. the Flemish. That one has a lot of PDO in it, mm-hmm. and um, it has a little bit of lactobacillus in it, mm-hmm. and um, it doesn't have any bread in it. Mm-hmm. So that that scares me, and it scares my my consumers, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's like, okay, how are you going to deal with you know, and how are you going to clean up the bread? Yeah, or how are you going to clean up PDO? Cleaning up itself, and I was like. Ah, just give it more time, and um, what what I'm finding is, it it really depends depends on malt bill, mm-hmm. um, with with that one, it depends on temperature with that one, and so you know like, what what I like about 
the yeast that, that I that I do offer is that again we're still teaching me. <laughs> well, and, and real quick, since we ha since we haven't actually touched on it, and I just dropped that in the middle of the conversation. So, in addition to to brewing and making sour beers and and ciders and other things, uh, you run Black Man Yeast, mm -hmm. uh, which offers four different varieties, right? Mm -hmm. Four different varieties of dried souring cultures: mm -hmm. uh, American, German, Flemish, and Belgian, right? Yes. And this is why I interviewed you last year for Beer Advocate because I ran across your product and I went, somebody's making dried sours? This is crazy. Because the, the dried yeast industry spent so much time trying to clean up their, their image and like, no, no, we don't have PDO in our, in our dried yeast anymore. And, and here comes Barrett. Hey, look, I got PDO in the packet. Yes. It's, it's a small boutique product. You know, I'm, I'm having fun with it, you know. And um, what, what I like about about it is you know just that you know it it, it allows people like me to to affect only one thing in a, in a brew house and then walk away from it like i say you open that pack and pitch it directly into a bottle and bucket style mm -hmm. and you you can rack above the the lays and bottle directly from that bucket mm -hmm. you know so well so what uh, i mean you're quite literally the only sour brewer that I've ever run into who one decided I'm going to you know go culture up a, my own blends right mm -hmm. and definitely the only one I've ever met who is producing those as a drive thing mm -hmm. so what what inspired you to go that way you know, well to be quite honest when I when I pushed back from the desk I really had to give the world everything that I had mm -hmm. and um, I, I kind of held on to my blends as as something that I would do if I ever had my own brewery mm -hmm. you know and I found myself, you know, like a year down the line and, and needing to to really give the world everything that I had. And um, it was it was Black History Month. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, OK, Madam C.J. Walker, you know, and I I mean, I was I was at a point where I had to come up with something. And mm -hmm. so I had to I had to release that out to the public. And it's been great. You know, it, it's something that I would do all over again, you know. But if you would ask me three years ago, like, no. Nah, I'm saving this for myself. This is my secret magic. Yeah, and that and that's the thing, you know, it's it's not magic. It's just, you know, like yeast is in the world around us, bacteria is in the world around us. And so I really just had to embrace where it was at in my life and, and kinda go that route. Well I mean I, th I think it's cool and badass. You know, that's it's fun, man. <laughs> so now is the the dry yeast themselves, or the dried cultures themselves, are they being produced locally, or do you have... Oh, no, that stuff is being handled by a lab. You know, right. it's not something you can do in your garage. <laughs> no, actually, yeah, yeah I, I, started, I started up a micro-yeast company in my garage. We were drying the yeast with a fan and a hairdryer. Yeah. I, I really want to add um, bread to the cultures. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a matter of how, right. you know. Um, I actually believe that the the product itself it i like it mm -hmm. like that um i guess the only one that i would really want to add the bread to is a f4 mix mm -hmm. um because I, I think that it would it would make the product more better right. you know the the b4 mix actually i really like that culture by itself um, because it it has bread like yeast in it right so yeah because the, uh, the b4 is uh saccharomyces and lacto 
Saccharomyces, lacto, and it has a little bit of PDO in it too. Yeah. And then the, the, the G4 is the one that you expect for, uh, you. that's like your blender vice. Yes. Right, you know, go yeah. very lactic, very tart. Mm-hmm. That's sort of, uh, that sort of approach. And then uh, what the other one's the American. Right? Yes. So, and uh, that one's for your American Wilds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're, they're all, they all have varying levels of sour. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the American is the lightest of, of the four. Mm-hmm. And then it will probably be the, um, the Belgian one. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then as it increases, right, the and, and, and the Flemish is the, the funky one? The Flemish one can get way out there, but you got to give it some time. <laughs> well, time, a little food, and watch what happens. Yeah. So, um, what, what do you think has been the, the most interesting reaction you've had to black man yeast? Oh, wow. That, and that's, that's always a, a great um, question because, you know, people ask, well, why do you name it black man? And I was like, when it really comes down to it, I started homebrewing and I had this moncker of black man. And um, that moncker just kind of followed me and really throughout my high school experience all the way till now mm-hmm. and so I was like w- would I give up on the monker probably not yeah. and um, and I don't I don't see it as anything racial or anything like mm-hmm. that and so so because of that it's like hey if if you're offended by it I don't want to work with you buddy <laughs> so I just kind of approach it like that mm-hmm. and um, you know like in the in the grand scheme if, if it was like big business kind of stuff and it wasn't boutique, mm-hmm. you know. Like it, it will probably have to be named after some kind of lab or something like that. But we we can have fun on a small scale, so that's good. Well, no, and uh, I had to laugh because you know. So last year I went down to Brazil, mm-hmm. and that was uh, just after I uh, found uh, found your product. And the the organizer of the Brazilian conference, Ronaldo, when when he saw me write up about uh, about black man yeast, he's like. Oh, oh, hey, hey, you, you gotta, you gotta bring me some of that. Nice. And so that was, uh, that was my, my gift uh, to him was I brought, I brought him a four pack, <laughs> you know, because the Brazilians, uh, those guys are, are nuts about uh, sour beers and all the, all the other things that they play with, and they have all the knowledge that we've been putting out there, right? Yeah, you because know, hey, the internet's a wonderful thing, share information. Yes. Uh, the one thing they don't have a lot of access to is the ingredients. And they're just they're just starting to get that now, but uh, so they uh, they're really kind of scrambling around. And I think one of the things that seemed very attractive about your cultures was the fact that because they're dried, they also have a pretty good shelf life. They do, you know. So because I mean, most of the time you go out there and you, you you go blow you know however much money on Brett and Lacto, and it's like okay, these got a, a month of shelf life. You better get brewing. You know? <laughs> Yeah, at least with the dried stuff, you know, it's just like with the dried yeast, you know, like, you know, USO5, you can leave that in the in the fridge, mm-hmm. and then when, when the mood strikes you, ha, we're going to do this now. Yeah. yeah so th- that's another nice advantage, I thought. So, all right, uh, let's, uh, let's get to wrapping things up here. So uh, what is something you wish more people would drink or explore? I, I think that we need some terms around the sour beers, you know. In terms of the techniques, mm-hmm. like kettle sours, um, you know, like the complexity of the sour, as well as you know what's what's actually at play, mm-hmm. you know, like like in wine you would think total acid, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody gave you a total acid on the beer, you would, you would feel very knowledgeable, mm-hmm. you know. I think that we should kind of go in that in that route. 
you know, I think pH is, tells one side of the story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell the full story. Yep. So, no, yeah, so more, it, more it, terms around sour beers. I think, I think if more people started talking TA, I think I think they'd realize how how much relation, how much more relation TA has to flavor mm-hmm. and that sour, the the apparent perception of sourness yes. than pH ever does. Mm-hmm. So that's a good one. Um, all right. Well, and, and let's talk the the kettle sours real quick because I know that in some circles, you know, like kettle sours are, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, controversial. Like people, you know, people look at it as like, you know, uh, there's something terrible or off, or they hate the kettle sours, or I think there are some people out there who just hate the fact that, you know, brewers are out there making kettle sours or these quick sours and then charging like long-term aged sour prices for their bottles. Yeah, and not. That's not so much here in Texas because we have a young emerging market, mm-hmm. um, but you know, like in more established markets like California, um, I think that you do get some some pushback on that because of the technicalness is not it's not as technical. Mm-hmm. But you're still tying up your your brew house for as long as it takes to to make that beer to produce that beer, mm-hmm. and if it doesn't turn out right, you have to dump it. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I think that there's there's still risk involved there. So when it comes down to price, I, I think that I think that price is really on the side of the consumers. The consumers mm-hmm. get to decide how much they want to pay for a beer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's kind of outside of our control as brewers. Um, but that being said, you know we we do a kettle sour here mm-hmm. at Deep Ellen. Mm-hmm. It's it's called Playdate, mm-hmm. and that that beer sits in the kettle for for 36 hours now, and I. I like it at, at 36 hours. When I when I first set out with the with the yeast product, um, I was wanting to get that down to 15, mm-hmm. and um, the the 15 didn't really allow the PDO that's in there to kind of come into its own. Mm-hmm. Um, so the 36 hours allows the PDO to kind of come into its own, and then and then I I knock it out um, and, and heat it up, but. Um, and that, that's that's one of the, the fun things that that I'm able to do here at Deep Ellum, um, and and have this background in home brewing and mm-hmm. playing around with sour beers and things like that. To know that if if I was a consumer and I went out and grabbed a beer, and it was a kettle sour and it promised that it was going to be as sour as as some of the long term sours, but when I opened it, it it was very faint. You know, even though the pH was low. The, the complexity on the sour was low. I would I would feel kind of cheated if I paid twenty dollars a bottle for that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's some merit to that. But I think that the consumers are the ones that that have a voice there. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Uh, any other brewing thoughts that you uh, you think the audience should know? Nah. Yeah, you're all you're all thought it out. <laughs> By the way, for for the audience, don't know Barrett is has been kind enough to do this and is sitting here somewhere about twenty percent functional uh, capacity because he is sick as a dog. I am. So thank you for doing it. All right. So last question, and okay. we'll, we'll get you back to your rest bed. Um, what non-beer thing are you fascinated by or obsessed with? Oh wow, vintage hi-fi audio. Vintage hi-fi audio. Yes, I am nutso over that stuff, um, and that that started way before beer. Mm-hmm. Um, when when I when I look at beer, I think beer kind of rolled into my life and 
completely destroyed me and then I had to pray to the Lord Jesus in terms of how I was going to get my life back together and um, he's been kind enough to bless me but um, been in Chi-Fi Audio. Do you, do you have a, a favorite piece of gear? Wow. <laughs> um, there is this thing called a front-loaded horn. Okay. And um, what, it, what it's designed to do is designed like a megaphone. Mm-hmm. So you imagine putting a speaker behind a megaphone. Right. But it's, it's a beautiful piece of furniture, and it's now your stereo. Okay. Front-loaded I think, horns. I think, I think I tried to sell that to my wife, and she wouldn't buy it. Yeah. And she's like, no, that's not a piece of furniture. We'll get you. <laughs> well, that's awesome. All right. Well, hey, uh, uh, Barrett, thank you so much for taking the time. You know, like I said, I know you're sick, and I really appreciate you doing this while I was here. And uh, everybody, uh, you know, go check out some Deep Ellen beer if you're in the area and you can and get your hands on it. Uh, they can go get your yeast at blackmanyeast.com. Mm-hmm. All right, blackmanyeast.com. You got four different varieties to play with, and they're fun. Uh, total easy way to do some sours. And uh, yeah, in the meanwhile. Keep supporting your, uh, your local sour brewers and the people who are playing weird. I know Denny hates it, but I love it. So, all right. Thank you, everybody, and thank you, Barrett. You're welcome. Okay. That was Drew talking to Barrett Tillman of Black Man Yeast. Interesting, interesting guy. And wow, what cool products, man. I know, yeah. And it's also just, I, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness that he's putting into a lot of this stuff. Uh, we wandered after the the tasting was done. We wandered around the, the the barrels that were in the torn down liquor store or run down liquor store, and went around sniffing things. And he showed me a really cool way that he actually has these bungs in the barrels, right, to keep the liquid from evaporating too much. But they're open, so the gas can come out, and then they're covered with little plastic cups. And looking at it going, hey, so why the little plastic cups? And he's like, oh, well, because. You can do this and leans over and pulls up the cup and sniffs the cup. And what what he's using, what he's doing is using the cup to help trap the aromas coming out of the barrel so he can tell what's going on. So uh, (laughs) that didn't make it into the interview, but it was really awesome. And he's just, he's incredibly passionate uh, and he has some really great ideas and some things that may be a little controversial, maybe a little questionable, uh, but they're definitely really interesting and fun to explore. That's right. So you've uh, brewed with some of his yeasts, haven't you? Yes, I have. Uh, by the way, I will also say one of the other great things about the, the yeast products that he sells, most of the time I get a, a hankering to do some sort of sour beer thing. So one, I got to go special order some lactobacillus or some pediococcus or this, that, and the other. Get the liquid cultures in. And then uh, as is usually what happens with me, I go, huh, I don't have the time. And the liquid cultures for the bacteria when I don't have that long in the shelf life. But these have an incredibly long shelf life. I think like most of the sachets are like a shelf life of a year or two or three. So if you're that kind of person like me who just suddenly wants to be able to brew a sour beer on a whim, but you don't want to have to go buy sour cultures all the time, it's a good thing to have on hand. Right on. So maybe you can uh, post some of the recipes you brewed with these things on the website. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So uh, look for those. We're going we're gonna to take a quick break. I'm going to break out the ukulele, and it'll be time for some Q&A with Ask Denny and Drew. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? 
we talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer, beer. And with the dulcet tones of the ukulele fading away into the distance, thank God, it's time for Ask Denny and Drew, the section of the show where we try and see if we can come up with moderately credible answers to some of your questions. Uh, Drew, you got the first one today. All right. So this first one comes from a, th- a user by the name of Flag uh, in the experimentalbrew.com forums. And he asks, I've heard that adding citric acid at the end of the boil can really make the hops really pop. Has anybody tried experimenting with citric acid? Uh, well, my answer to this is, uh, okay, one, I've never heard that. Uh, so no, I haven't done it. And in thinking about it, my, my real thought about it is, okay, what about citric acid would make the hops pop? And the only thing I can really say is that what you may be experiencing or what other people may be experiencing, the people who are promoting this technique is that sort of organoleptic, uh, booster that acid adds to anything that we taste. You know, it, it sort of serves as a signal booster and gives us that sense of uh, freshness. We tend to think of things that are acidic as being fresher. That's the reason why so much of our food is acidic. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think there's anything magical about adding citric acid and making your hops pop and seem fresher and fruitier. I think that's just a uh, organic leptic thing. Now, would I actually do it with my IPA? No, probably not. Uh, I don't think I would actually uh, follow that particular piece of advice. What do you think, Danny? Yeah, the, there is there is something to it in that generally a hoppy beer comes off a little bit better with a lower pH, and a darker, maltier beer comes off a little bit better with a slightly higher pH. So obviously adding citric acid, being an acid, it's going to lower your pH and kind of like... Uh, accentuate the crispness of the hops. Uh, you know, when he says really pop, it kind of depends on what you mean. I don't think it's going to do anything in terms of the uh, hop flavor. Uh, I think it's going to maybe kind of just like crispen up the beer, uh, give it maybe a little bit of a drier finish. I don't know that I would use citric acid to do that because I would be afraid you would have to add so much to affect a, a significant pH change that you might be able to taste it. I think that uh, I would I would maybe go with a more conventional means. And uh, for me, for, for a beer where I want a lot of crispness to it, I target a pH in the 5.2, 5.3 area, whereas for a uh, maltier uh, kind of style, I'll target more of a 5.5, 5.6 pH. So, you know... The theory is kind of sound. I don't know if I would use citric acid, uh, but I haven't tried it. So, uh, you know, if you happen to try this uh, flag, let us know, man. Uh, Or if anybody else has tried it, let us know what you think. Yeah, you know, the only other thing I can think of is there's also a lot of people are thinking the interplay about citric acid and citric hops or citrus flavored hops. I wonder if there's a little Mm -hmm. bit of that confusion in there as well or a little bit of that sort of thought. Oh, could be, could be. All right, Denny, you. Okay, next question comes from John Saj. I hope I've pronounced that right uh, via Facebook, and it's an oldie but a goodie. And we're going to try and uh, not spend too much time on it. What are your thoughts on hot side aeration at the homebrew level? 
any truth or is it just a myth? Uh, uh, yes and yes. Um, I would say that my experience has taught me to be a lot less concerned about hot side aeration than I used to be. However, I do not believe that it is totally a myth. I think that it can happen. I know that uh, Marshall and other people have done experiments where they have uh, beat the crap out of their wort and uh, not come up with any of the traditional problems that uh, hot side aeration is supposed to cause. On the other hand, I've had one brewing experience where... Uh, I was helping a friend brew. He'd built a cooler like mine, was using a, a three-quarter inch ball valve and picking up a lot of oxygen during his runoff. That beer ended up being badly oxidized in the end, but I don't know what happened to it after it left my house. You know, we did the mash and boil here. He took it home. He packaged it. None of his other beers exhibited oxidation problems. So I kind of have to assume that his process was fine. So that only leaves me to guess that the oxidation that uh, we found in that beer was caused by a, a lot of uh, air pickup during his mash runoff. You know, I, I don't consider that conclusive by any means, but what it says to me is that maybe it's not a myth, and hot side aeration is easy enough to avoid that that's generally what I do. The uh, commonly accepted temperature is, you know, mid to upper 80s. Uh, you don't want to aerate your wort above that. Uh, below it, it's okay. I, again, I don't consider that there's conclusive proof on one side or the other. So I try to avoid it, but I don't worry about it. What, what's your thinking? Well, I mean, I always just go back to what Charlie Bamford said years ago on the on the session on the brewing network where I basically what he came down to. remember uh, if you don't know, uh, Charlie Bamforth is a professor at UC Davis uh, about brewing long tenure as a brewer, a brewing scientist in the industry, particularly in England and spent a lot of time working on uh, arguably one of the least flavorful beers known to mankind, Carling black label. And so a man who would have been very, very concerned about all this sort of stuff. And he said on the session, that all things being equal, if you are at the point where HSA is a worry for you, then you have incredibly well-defined processes and process control. In other words, there are so many other things that we are doing as homebrewers that have way more impact on our final beer quality than HSA ever will. So I don't worry about it, but at the same time, just like Denny, I'm not aggressively stupid about it either. So just... My rule is minimize the splashing. Otherwise, everything's hunky-dory. Yeah, and, you know, and I've done things like, you know, run off my word into a bucket, picked up the bucket, dumped it into my boil kettle, you know, lots of splashing, lots of air. And, you know, the beer turned out fine. Uh, that, that was a test to see how bad I could make it and see what would happen. But in general, I try and be careful and just, you know, hopefully it won't happen. So Myth, plausible, myth, actual effect. Nah. Yeah, I, like I, I mean, like I said, be careful, but don't drive yourself crazy. So, uh, Drew, you got a sour beer question. Sure. Sorry. Uh, this one comes from uh, Aaron Meta uh, via Facebook. Uh, I have a question about kettle souring and or using sour malt. I know a lot of brewers are doing this to create goes and other sour beers faster. My question is whether I need two sets of equipment, carboys, plastic tubing, etc., 
like I would if I was introducing lacto or brit into secondary to prevent contamination of subsequent batches, or whether the boil kills the bugs but leaves the sour flavor. Thanks. Uh, easy. No, you don't need separate equipment. Uh, and in fact, I think the whole point of doing anything on the hot side to sour your wort is for precisely that purpose, right? You know, you know, so there weren't a lot of brewers making sour beers before people started to really promote the kettle souring technique, precisely for the fact that when you're in a production brewery, you don't necessarily want to have two sets of hoses, two sets of fermenters, two sets of this, that, and the other. So in reality, I think as long as you're taking your beer through a full and hearty boil, uh, go for it. Use your exact same equipment. You've killed off the lactobacillus. Uh, think of it as no different than the fact that if you take wort straight from your mash tun and don't boil it, it's going to get sour in your in your equipment because lactobacillus is on that grain. But we trust the boil to kill the lactobacillus that's living on the grain well enough that we'd never have to worry about that on the other side. So that's exactly what's happening here. Uh, now, the only place where I, I will throw some caution is if you are doing things that are throwing a lot of uh, funkier flavors, funkier esters and whatnot. It's probably still a good idea to maintain some uh, separate plastic equipment, but not for fear of infection, but fear for introducing those flavors into the plastic that you're using. So particularly things like soft plastic tubing. So in other words, the answer is a bit mixed because it is always, but no, you don't have to worry about infection risk. But if you want to make sure that you're kind of keeping your equipment pristine and it's plasticky equipment and you have enteric flavors, you have Brett flavors, you have any sort of funky flavor that might carry across at a very low threshold, then it might just be a good idea to have it for that isolation purpose, but not because of infection. Right. Yep. I agree completely with that one. So our last question today comes from Dave on Reddit. And he says, a quick question for Denny or yourself. That would be Drew. Yep. When doing brew in a bag and doing research. Do you recirc into the grain bag or below the grain bag? Well, this is a pretty easy one. You recirc into the grain bag. You want your uh, your Vorloff to go through the grain. In a traditional mash tun, the grain itself becomes the filter medium. So uh, when you're doing brew in a bag and you're recirculating your wort to Vorloff, pour it back in through the grain bag and let the grain do its job, right? Absolutely. I mean... That, and plus, think about it this way. Brew in a bag, you don't have a lot of opportunity to really get maximal extraction of flavors, right? So, yeah, it's not like a full uh, full sparge going on there. So, to me, I think uh, you'd, you'd be missing out on something if you didn't go through the bag. Yep, but, exactly. But I will, uh, I will say that with the caveat of uh, I don't normally brew uh, with brew in a bag. So, uh, people out there who are hardcore brewing the baggers may disagree with me on that. But, uh, okay. Right, I've only done a few brew in a bag batches myself, but uh, that's what made sense to me. So that's what I did. So, All right, boys and girls, that's the best that we can do for answers this week. So if you have questions, uh, please get us questions. As you saw in our, our segment here, we take questions everywhere. You can find us on Facebook. You can find me on Reddit. You can find Denny on pretty much every brewing forum known to mankind and some known only to the inhabitants of series four. <laughs> and of course, and the, the dark recesses of my mind. There you go. And of course, you can always email us at questions at experimentalbrew.com or podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Uh, just remember, any question that you ask us anywhere that you see us, 
may end up on this show if Danny and I think it's cute enough, clever enough, or interesting enough to have a discussion about. So reach out and ask us questions. And that also goes double for the fact that, remember, I'm coming up at the uh, Homebrew Con in Baltimore in June. We will be doing a live Q&A, so that means we need lots of questions. And the more time you give us, the better researched our answers can be. Or you can just show up and throw us a question off the cuff and uh, watch us sweat as we try and come up with an answer. So, How spectacularly wrong can we be? That's right. It's time for the quick tip of the week, and I think Drew's got one for us this week. All right. So inspired by the fact that we've uh, been talking to Barrett Tillman earlier in this episode, I figured our quick tip of the week should be something about souring. Uh, We also had the question about kettle souring. But I will say that a really, really handy tool that I picked up last year because they just started to really get on sale and for the consumer end of the market is a good immersion circulator for sous vide cooking. Now, this is just really, it's a little impeller motor with a heating element and a microcontroller that's watching the temperature and keeping everything spot on dialed into a temperature. Now, why would a brewer want to use that sort of thing? Uh, I know some people out there try to use sous vide tools for mashing. Uh, that's sort of not within the manufacturer's guidelines of the use of the tools, so I don't do it. But what you can really use these tools for in terms of brewing, take a starter culture, something like uh, if you're making lactobacillus, which it prefers for its starters to be much warmer than than our usual beer starters do. Heat up a, a, a hot water bath to like 110 degrees Fahrenheit, 115 degrees Fahrenheit. And stick your starter media in a mason jar and put that in the bath and then pitch your lacto into it and let it sit and grow. And you have a much better way of growing hot loving media or hot loving bacteria in a warm bath and with the minimal stress and strain. And plus, you can make a really awesome steak or roast with it while you're at work. So sous vide, immer- <laughs> sous vide immersion circulator, your quick tip of the week. Hey, that's a great idea, man. That's a really cool idea. Well, believe it or not, Drew and I have a, a few interests other than beer that we like to talk about every week, and I'm going to kick it off this week, starting about my new sourdough bread culture. Boy, does that sound exciting, huh? Mm. About 10 years ago, uh, a guy in our club gave me a little uh, sourdough starter that uh, he had made, and I've been keeping it going for 10 years. Uh, Baking bread is one of those hobbies that I love just about as much as brewing. Uh, A lot of the same skills and knowledge base go into both of them. So anyway, after 10 years of uh, using this sourdough culture, and I don't bake as often as I should, so it doesn't get as refreshed as often as it should, Uh, It was starting to really get a little bit old, so I decided it was time to start up a new culture. I pulled out my favorite bread-baking book, uh, Peter Reinhardt's The uh, Bread Baker's Apprentice. Oh, that's an awesome book. Yeah, totally, totally awesome book. The other one that I really, really dig is uh, by Ken Forkish called uh, Flour, Water, Salt, Yeast, something like that. Uh, Anyway, in Peter's book, he has the directions for... uh, getting a new sourdough starter going, and I decided I would do that. One interesting thing that Peter recommends that a lot of other people don't is using pineapple juice to start it off. Now, you start with rye flour for a couple reasons. Uh, Number one, there are uh, more proteins in the rye flour to nourish your starter, and there is more funk in there to get it going with. But the problem with making a sourdough bread starter 
is that a bacteria called leuconostic can take over your starter and it'll make it look like it's going, but it won't actually be fermenting like a true wild yeast would. So by using pineapple juice in the first step of this starter, what happens is it uh, you know makes the pH lower and keeps the leuconostic bacteria at bay so that your wild yeast can uh, really take over and go. So it took uh, probably four or five days for this seed culture to, uh, to get going. Uh, after that happened, I put that into a, uh, another little bigger uh, starter that is called a barm. And uh, that's what you really save and restart all your future batches with is that barm. You take that out and make a firm starter with it. So... Anyway, the process worked great. We'll have some pictures of the uh, loaves on the website for you to look at. And if you want to try it yourself, go get the Bread Baker's Apprentice by Peter Reinhardt. And if, if you get the book, there's a focaccia recipe in it that is to die for. You got to make that one, too. Oh, Oh yeah, no that that focaccia recipe oh, is God. amazing. <laughs> Let me tell you, uh, you know, and one of the things that makes it is the herb oil that you put on it, and uh, Go, yep. go buy the book, make make your sourdough starter, make the focaccia, and you will be a happy bread person. So, And you got more food. Yeah, I was going to say, you'll definitely be a, a heavier yeah, food person, yeah. too, particularly if you eat too much of the focaccia. Definitely. And I have more food as well. Last episode, we talked about our mobile canning experiences, and I talked about the Saison that we did as a mobile canning project for the Maltos Falcons. And... That was great fun. It was a Saison that was inspired by a Figola, a Maltese Easter dessert, uh, kind of a marzipan cookie with uh, anisette, lemon, orange, etc. And one of the things that I did while I was searching around for, okay, how am I going to get the almond flavor in there, is I turned around and went to one of my friends in the club, a guy named Alan Tracy, who his family has an almond farm because we live in California and almond farms are a thing. So... I said, hey, Alan, I'm trying to figure out how to do uh, almond flavor in this beer. Would it be possible to get some almonds from you? Because, dude, those things are expensive just to play around with. And so, yeah, he, he turned around and he's like, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. I'll get you some almonds. And he dropped 20 pounds of almonds on me. Uh, so, yay, 20 pounds of almonds. What am I going to do with this? And eventually we ended up going with just doing an almond extract in the beer. And I still had about 20 pounds of almonds uh, left over. And remember, the beer is going to be a judge judge's gift for our Mayfair competition, which by the time this podcast airs, will have already passed. And I didn't want Ellen's gift of 20 pounds of almonds to go to waste. So I decided, well, you know, judges like having additional gifts. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to make an additional gift for everybody. And I took the 20 pounds of almonds. And I took 10 pounds of them and I blanched them and then peeled them by hand. And let me tell you, <laughs> blanching and peeling 10 pounds of almonds no, by thanks. hand, yeah, it's a tedious, painful task. It took me two hours, and my wife helped me for one part of it. So it really would have taken me more like three uh, hours to do the, t uh, the 10 pounds. And so I'm looking at the other half of this and going, I don't want to do the other half of this. This is going to suck. And this is where my rescue skills come, into hand come in handy because I decided, you know what? The judges are going to get two flavors of almonds. <laughs> so the blanched almonds, the blanched almonds I went and I took and I candied in a syrup that I made that was infused with uh, lemon and orange zest. 
So those are, and then sugared and salted, and those have been sitting drying and they're ready to go. And then the other half that are still have their nice brown skins on them have been candied in a syrup made of both white sugar and brown sugar, because hey, brown skinned almonds, white, uh, white sugar and brown sugar, star anise, and vanilla. All four of the all four of those flavors, the lemon, the orange, the anise, and the vanilla are all sort of semi-traditional or sometimes found components in a figola. So the idea is going to be each of the judges are going to get a little bag of nuts uh, and they're going to have the ability to have like a full figola experience in their mouth with snack nuts while they're drinking their figola Ooh, beer. You could send me some of those too. I could, but I don't want you to have my nuts. <laughs> uh, if you think I'm going to touch that one, uh, you're out of your mind. Okay, so with that out of the way, it is time for our question of the week, and we are dying to know, what do you think? Are you surprised by the results of the olive oil experiment, or are you not surprised by the results of the olive oil experiment? Are you an olive oil devotee who just can't stop using it anyway? Just let us know. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm really curious to see how the internet reacts to these results, because... Well, the results are interesting. Yes, they are. They're at least they're definitely at odds with uh, with what everybody thinks that they know out there. So, indeed. All right, let's go ahead and let's recap this thing. Do it because we've done a lot in a short period of time. All right, so we talked. Uh, we went into the pub and we talked a bunch of beery stories, some new gluten free barley, some homebrew con happenings, uh, some uh, other fun stuff. We sat down in the library and we talked about our new favorite book, aka our book, Homebrew All Stars, available at your final retailers. Uh, we talked. Buy it. Buy we it. went and we talked with the with yeah exactly. Uh, this is Denny's retirement fund, people. Right. Buy it. Uh, we talked to Barry Tillman and learned a lot of his secrets about both Black Man Yeast and his love of wild ales and what exactly drives him and the techniques that he's using. We attempted to answer your questions as best as we could. Uh, we talked also about the olive oil experiment, like we just mentioned. And then of course you got your quick tip and you got some almonds and some sourdough. So you can go have a snack and some bread to go with it. But that's this episode. Next episode, we're going to have even more fun. So stay tuned. And thanks a lot for listening to the experimental brewing podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at Experimental Brew. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on places I don't even know about. You can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to contact each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And always remember to brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. 